Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Today we bring you Part 1 of Custer's Last Stand, the incredible true story of the people and events that led to one of the most one-sided battles in history, the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876, a devastating defeat for the 7th Cavalry, and a huge but pyrrhic victory for the Sioux and Cheyenne Indians, who would soon be seeing an end to their era of freedom on the American Plains. We'll be taking a deep dive into the personalities and events that led to the Battle of the Little Bighorn with lots of stories that you've likely never heard. So saddle up for a ride into history that you won't be forgetting soon. And now, Custer's Last Stand, Part 1. Visions of the Little Bighorn. A depressing, thick, gray mist hung over the rain-soaked parade ground at Fort Lincoln on the Missouri River, just south of present-day Bismarck, North Dakota, as the 7th Cavalry assembled for its final circuit of the garrison in the pre-dawn hours of May 17, 1876. A regiment on the march meant a gathering of 1,200 mounted cavalry troops, dozens of scouts, in this case Arica and Crow, dozens of supply wagons driven by Teamsters, and at least 100 mules, each one carrying its own burden strapped to its back. It was a mass of moving, braying parts, all having their assigned place within the formation, which, when stretched out on the plain, would form a two-mile-long line, four horses and riders wide. As the cavalry contingent of the regiment splashed past the sprawling tents and log-hut complex outside the stockade, the regimental band, led by five-foot-two-inch Felix Vinatieri, struck up Gary Owen, a rousing Irish tune that had become popular during the Civil War and had become the 7th Cavalry's favorite tune. The music seemed to make sense of the picture as the head of the column rode toward the garrison, led by General George Armstrong Custer and his wife Libby on their mounts, passing by the quarters of the Ericara Scouts, where those wives, clad in blankets, crouched near the ground in front of their small log huts, their heads bent in sorrow, and next, passing the residences of the enlisted men's families, 
known as Laundress Row, where tearful mothers with small children held them up for their fathers to see as they passed. Half of the 7th Cavalry consisted of European immigrants, from Italy to Scandinavia. The pay was miserable, but it was still better than from where they had come. The rest of the 7th was a mixture of farm boys, Civil War veterans from both sides, adventurers, scholars, gamblers, Irish toughs, soldiers of fortune who had fought for foreign kings, and others. Some had arrived green from eastern cities, unable to ride, or shoot, or follow orders. But they learned here, and they learned fast, where they were mustered out. They were proud of what they were, proud to belong to the Seventh, and were very aware that they were hunting and sometimes fighting some of the greatest guerrilla fighters on earth, the Plains Indians. The whole scene was not what Custer or his commanding officer General Terry had wanted, as the Seventh was considered by many to be the best cavalry unit in the Army, best in horsemanship, best in firearms, best in discipline, and best in pride and honor. George Armstrong Custer's mind was no doubt a busy one as he tried to envision the campaign ahead of him, his orders being to deliver a show of force to the Indians who had refused thus far to surrender their lives and freedom to the reservations which had been set up to accept them. Just two years before, Custer had departed this same garrison with orders to explore the Black Hills, land that the Teton Sioux, known as the Lakota, held sacred, ostensibly to find a suitable site for a fort. But rumors had been circulating that the Black Hills contained gold. Along with Custer's huge column traveled President Grant's eldest son, Colonel Frederick Dent Grant, two gold mining experts, as well as three newspaper reporters and a photographer who could send stories back to a waiting public in the East, and did. Not far from French Creek, Custer's expedition did find gold. News of this was to spur gold seekers and dreamers in the years to come, filling the once sacred Black Hills with newcomers and setting the scene for the clash of civilizations which was to come in 1876 at the Little Bighorn. The warlike Sioux tribes had, for the past 100 years, dominated the Kiowa and Crow Indians, sending the Crow flying east past the Bighorn River, and constantly raiding the Assiniboine, Shoshone, Pawnees, Gros Ventre, and Omaha for slaves and horses. The Sioux like all other Indians of the plains, were skilled in the means of warfare and torture, and had practiced this upon not only their Native American brothers since the beginning of memory, but against whites who were now encroaching on their lands, their hunting grounds, their way and means of life. They had one great ally, the Sioux did, the Cheyenne to the south, but many of them had gone to the reservations. Custer's mission in the spring of 1876 was not to protect settlers from Indian attacks. It was an unauthorized excursion into Indian territory in order to provoke a war, plain and simple. A war which everyone from President Grant on down the chain of command believed would break the will of the Sioux and the remaining Cheyenne who had not capitulated. Grant had tried to buy the Black Hills from the Sioux, who said it wasn't for sale. The very idea of buying and selling land was unknown to them. So Grant ordered all the Sioux to report to a reservation by January of that year, 1876. The idea of taking orders from a great white father 
was just as foreign to most Sioux as the idea of selling land to them. As he rode past the officers' quarters, Custer no doubt thanked his good luck for the opportunity to be here, to make up for past mistakes, to settle differences, and forever secure his reputation. It had been a surreal past few months for him, as he had received unexpected orders just a month ago to return to Washington, D.C. to testify for a Democrat-controlled congressional committee about corruption within the War Department of the troubled Republican Grant administration. Custer had not witnessed any corruption, but gave testimony filled with hearsay and speculation that heaped guilt upon Grant's Secretary of War, William Belknap, as well as Grant's brother, Orville. Custer had come from a solid Democrat family and was using the opportunity to help take down a Republican president, regardless of the fact that Grant was his commander-in-chief. The move could also serve him well with the party in his own bid for the top seat a vision which he shared with a few of his closest friends and Libby. When Custer attacked Grant's brother, that outraged Grant, who initially blocked Custer's return to Fort Lincoln, ordering him removed from the train until the press, which was firmly in the Democrats' pocket, mounted so much pressure that Grant finally had to relent. Grant gave in, but not before making sure that Custer was given a stinger to his pride a commanding officer for his campaign to capture Sitting Bull, Brigadier General Alfred Terry. Terry and Custer were opposites, as far apart as two people could be. While Custer was impetuous, pompous, and known as a hard taskmaster, Terry, the only officer in the post-Civil War Army who was not a West Point graduate, was a former lawyer and basically a level-headed guy. Custer had had a number of episodes marking his career on the frontier, one of them happening in 1867 during the Cheyenne Campaign when Custer, the youngest general in the army, hearing that his wife Libby was being paid more than the usual attention by an officer back at another fort, abandoned his regiment and rode 150 miles to make sure Libby's honor was intact. For that, he was busted in rank, ordered to stay out of the service for one year, and sitting at home in Michigan, unsure of his future, until suddenly a letter from General Phil Sheridan arrived asking him to return to command, the first of many incidents which would mark him as the comeback kid of the Army Officer Corps. As the horses trailed past the officers' quarters, behind Custer rode Majors Frederick Benteen and Marcus Reno. Both were highly capable officers. Upon his arrival at Fort Lincoln, Custer's first decision was to split his regiment of 1,200 men into three groups, Custer's, Benteen's, and Reno's. Benteen had proven himself unintimidated by Custer eight years ago when he had written an anonymous letter to a St. Louis newspaper strongly criticizing Custer's winter raid on an Indian village on the Washita on November 27th of that year, saying, and correctly so, that Custer, under Sheridan's command, had attacked a friendly village, extracted hostages, including females, and retreated quickly, abandoning some of his men, including Major Joe Elliott and 12 other men, who, with his troopers, was found tortured and scalped a week later, only two miles from the Indian campground. The letter stated that Custer had called it the Battle of Washita, when indeed it was a surprise raid on a camp of friendly Cheyennes under the leadership of Black Kettle, one of the few Cheyennes who was willing to talk peace. 
When Custer learned of that article, he gathered his men together and challenged whoever had written it to come forward, and he would horsewhip him himself. Benteen made a show of checking his sidearm as Custer was threatening. When Benteen stepped forward, Custer was taken aback. All he could say was, Colonel Benteen, I'll see you again, sir. And the meeting was dismissed. Custer never spoke to Benteen about it. Historians have wondered why Custer kept Benteen in his command, and some have theorized that Benteen, having served with Custer for nearly ten years, knew much more than what had happened on the Washita. By keeping him close and busy, at least Custer knew what his enemy was doing, and who knows, fighting Indians was dangerous work. Benteen also had a close relative in the news business, in fact, the man who had founded AP News, and Custer knew this, and the one thing Custer needed most was good press, if there was a political chance looming in his vision. And there was. Behind Benteen rode Major Reno, whose actions during the Battle of Little Bighorn were to come under heavy criticism in the weeks to come. He would be charged with drunkenness and disorientation while under fire, and eventually blamed, or at least used as a scapegoat, for Custer's failure. While Custer was savoring his new opportunities, the mood at Fort Lincoln was somber as the army prepared for what every man and woman knew was a coming war. All that spring, the wives of the officers, as Libby Custer later wrote, had been haunted by visions of doom with regard to this campaign. She wrote that by the time they reached the officers' quarters, the band had changed to the girl I left behind me. But this time, both Libby and Custer's younger sister Maggie, who was married to Lieutenant James Calhoun, would be allowed to accompany the regiment to their first campsite on the Hart River, about 15 miles away, and then return to Fort Lincoln. Soon after they left the garrison, as they mounted a steep hillside that gave way to a wide, rolling plain to the west, Libby looked back on the column of 1,200 men spread out now over two miles, and saw an incredible vision. As the sun rose behind them, burning through the rising mist from the earth, a reflection of about half of the line of cavalry became visible in the misty air above them, making it appear as if the men were marching both on the earth and in the sky. For her, the vision was a frightening omen. It seemed as if the gates of heaven were opening up to receive them. From high up on a butte near the Rosebud River, Sitting Bull also had a vision. He had pleaded with his god, Wonkatanka, to help his people in the fight he knew was coming. His scouts had reported to him that there were soldiers on the north bank of the Yellowstone River. This was Colonel Gibbon's regiment, marching from Fort Ellis in Montana Territory. And that more soldiers from the south were preparing to march north, which would be General Crook's troops marching from Fort Fetterman in Wyoming Territory. Perched on a mossy rock, Sitting Bull began to pray until he fell asleep and dreamed. In his dream, he saw a large, puffy white cloud drifting overhead. The cloud was shaped like a Lakota village nestled under a snow-capped mountain. On the horizon to the east, he saw the faint brown smudge of an approaching dust storm. Faster and faster the storm approached, until he realized that at the center of the swirling cloud of dust was a regiment of horse soldiers. They came on faster and faster, 
until they collided with the big white cloud in a crash of lightning and a burst of rain. In an instant, the dust and the soldiers had been washed away, and all was quiet and peaceful again as the big white cloud disappeared. When he awoke, he knew where the attack was coming from, not from the west or north or south, but from the east, from Fort Lincoln and Yellowhair. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. By the second week of March, after slogging through deep mud caused by non-stop rains, General Terry had become sick and tired of Custer's long absences from command. Custer was to respond with a letter to Terry, explaining that he felt he could be of more service to Terry acting with the advance, in other words, the scouting parties. But now he realized that Terry wanted him to stay with the main portion of the regiment, he would do just that. There was no doubt that Custer enjoyed the company of his scouts, especially the Arikara Bloody Knife. But that wasn't where he had been. As Custer explained in a letter to Libby, he and his brother Tom had been off skylarking, having fun, at one point leaving their younger brother Boston alone as he picked a pebble from his horse's shoe, circling back into the woods and then firing several shots over Boston's head, causing him to believe he was being attacked by Indians, which caused him to jump on his horse and begin galloping back toward camp. The letter continued, Tom and I mounted our horses and soon overtook him. He will not hear the last of it for some time. Custer, from then on, was seen with the main column, always on one of two fine mounts that were kept well-fed for him, Vic and Dandy, his head shaved for this campaign, wearing fringed white buckskins and a gray wide-brimmed hat, the suit having been made for him by an Irish sergeant who had once been a tailor. After three weeks of marching, General Terry was at his wit's end. Early intel had placed Sitting Bull on the Little Missouri, but such was not the case. There had been no contact from Crook's column, which was moving north from Wyoming Territory. Gibbon's column sent three messengers who arrived at the tail end of a wicked snowstorm, and the news was that Gibbon was making his way east along the north bank of the Yellowstone. Gibbon had passed the Rosebud Creek, hearing that there was a large encampment further up that creek, and instead of heading up it, was trying to meet up with Terry. Terry realized that Sitting Bull was likely there, and that he still had another 150 miles to cover before he could reach it. He sent those messengers back to Gibbon with orders to turn around and meet him at the mouth of the Rosebud. Thirty miles north from the mouth of the Rosebud, and by the way, almost all of the smaller rivers in that area, ran northward, not southward. Sitting Bull and his band of Hunk Papasu were being inundated by other tribes seeking refuge from approaching columns of cavalry. Most notably, General Crook's column, which, beginning on March 17th, began launching attacks on the villages of First Wooden Leg and then Crazy Horse, driving Cheyenne, Oglala, and Minikanju northward toward Sitting Bull. Crook's secret to finding these camps and being able to attack without warning was due mostly to his new scout, Frank Gruard, one of history's least known but most interesting figures in the Indian campaigns in 1876. Gruard had been captured in a raid somewhere west of the Missouri River by Sitting Bull and a small war party in 1869. At that time, he was a big 19-year-old wearing a shaggy buffalo coat. 
and had the good fortune to have the hair and facial features of an Indian. He was actually a South Sea Islander, having been raised by a Mormon missionary, and for some reason Sitting Bull was taken to him and adopted him as his brother. He nicknamed him the Grabber, because he looked like a bear. Gruard became the go-between for Sitting Bull, and by 1872, one government clerk described Gruard as a sandwich islander called Frank, who appears to exercise great control in the Indian councils, and who excels the Indians in their bitter hatred of the whites. In 1872, Gruard left Sitting Bull's camp and joined Crazy Horse, where he became familiar with that leader's ways and movements. And by 1875, he joined the Red Cloud Agency, where he offered his services to government officials who were trying to put together a deal to purchase the Black Hills from the Sioux. When Crook's column approached in 1876, Gruard signed on as a scout. At first, he wasn't trusted, because the other scouts knew of his prior affiliation with both Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. But when his information proved accurate and Crook was able to take the camps by surprise, Gruard's value went up. At 6 a.m. on Thursday, June 15, 1876, Custer and five select companies of the 7th Cavalry, called the Left Wing, crossed the Powder River and headed up the south bank of the Yellowstone. Major Reno had been sent on a scouting mission with five companies of men up the Tongue River by General Terry, who was now using the riverboat the Far West as his HQ. He had no intention of joining any of them in battle. He had done his fighting in the Civil War 12 years ago when he was younger, and General Gibbon was doing his best to avoid any confrontation and staying on the north bank of the Yellowstone. Within plain view of Sioux and Cheyenne scouts, who could see that he wasn't threatening anyone. Major Reno had an excellent scout named Mitch Boyer, and Boyer was telling him that if he wanted to find Indians, he was going to have to look elsewhere. That would mean disobeying orders Reno knew, but in the army, there was an unspoken code which implied that it was okay to disobey orders provided you came up with successful results. Reno followed Boyer's advice and started heading up Rosebud Creek. On that same day, June 15th, in the afternoon, Custer's men came upon the remains of a Lakota camp from the previous winter. The Indians, to a greater degree than whites, were very superstitious about their dead and had certain customs about burial as well as the sanctity of the burial sites. To disturb or rob a gravesite would have meant banishment or death in the Indian way of life. To outsiders, it carried the curse of death. To Custer, who, upon entering the camp, found the skull and partial uniform of a trooper who had been tortured and roasted to death by his captors, it meant revenge. He wrote Libby that after discovering the skull, they came upon the site of an Indian burial ground where some of the bodies had been tied to the branches of trees and some had been laid on burial scaffolds. Custer ordered his interpreter, Isaiah Dorman, to remove the wrappings from one of the bodies on the scaffolds, and when this was done, Dorman threw the body in the river. G Company, under the command of Lieutenant McIntosh, removed trinkets from more bodies before throwing them in the river. Tom Custer wrote to his mother that, quote, Armstrong, Tom, and I pulled down an Indian grave the other day. Audie Reed, who, by the way, was Custer's nephew, got a bow with six arrows and a nice pair of moccasins, which he intends taking home. End quote. Lieutenant Edward Godfrey, who watched but did not take part, was clearly shocked at all the Custer's behavior. 
He wrote that several of them rode about exhibiting their trinkets with as much gusto as if they were trophies of valor, and showed no more concern for their desecration than if they'd won them at a raffle. And then he wrote, Ten days later I saw the bodies of those same men dead, naked, and mutilated. Fred Gruard, who was present and looking on, later said that, quote, The demise of the three Custer brothers, Audie Reed and Lieutenant Cook, was the vengeance of God that had overtaken them for their deed. The same day that the Custers were desecrating the Lakota burial ground, Major Reno, about 50 miles to the southwest, was coming across Major Indian side. That being a recently worn, wide path made by horse-drawn travois that were used by Sitting Bull's growing tribe to move his village and others northward. The Rosebud Valley here had been scoured. The re-scout, Forktorn said, by the movement of about 3,000 Sioux. Reno asked him for his opinion, and Forktorn answered, If the Dakotas see us, the sun will not move very far before we are all killed. But you are the leader, and we will go on if you say so. By 4 p.m., Reno had seen enough. He ordered the right wing to turn around and head north toward the Yellowstone. He had violated his orders, but he had gained powerful intelligence. The Indians were no longer where Terry thought they were. Sixty miles to the south of Reno at that moment, General Crook and his men had come under attack. He had no idea where the Dakota and Montana columns were. He had gained his fame as an Apache fighter, and he had no respect for the Sioux, although that was about to come. He sent out his scouts, Crow and Shoshone warriors, tough men all, and soon the Crow scouts came galloping into camp, saying that a large number of Lakota and Cheyenne warriors were headed their way. Crook's troopers were dismounted, and some had even begun setting up their tents. They were caught completely by surprise. They soon began hearing the shrill war cry of the attacking horde, a cry so loud and terrible that many of the troopers' mounts panicked, making it nearly impossible to saddle them and then climb aboard. Meanwhile, on a high plateau above the Rosebud, Crook's large contingent of scouts met the oncoming attack. Frank Gruard was there and wrote, The coming together of the Sioux against the Crow and Shoshone scouts was the prettiest sight in the way of a fight that I've ever seen. The fighting remained hand-to-hand until finally the troops began to appear about 20 minutes after it started, and the Lakota reluctantly began to fall back. I believe that had it not been for the Crows, Gruard recalled, the Sioux would have killed half our command before the soldiers were in position to repel the attack. As one captain would later recall, the Indians proved then and there that they were the best cavalry on earth. In charging up toward us, he said, they exposed little of their person, hanging on with one arm around the neck of their horse, firing and lancing from underneath their horses' backs so that there was no part of the Indian at which to aim. The Indians came not in long lines, but in groups or herds like buffalo. After six hours of fighting, the Sioux had seen enough for one day. Crook didn't have enough ammo left to pursue them, so he turned back and made camp near present-day Sheridan, Wyoming. Crook had been impressed by the Indians' method and ferocity of attack, as well as the fact that many were armed with repeating rifles, while most of his troopers were using single-shot 1873 Springfield carbines. Crook fired off a letter to General Sheridan in Chicago, but for reasons we can only guess, never contacted General Terry or sent messengers to Reno's or Custer's columns. 
Maybe he did, and the messengers never made it through. Crook would camp for six weeks without moving. He had effectively taken his entire force out of the battle. It seems as though he had seen enough of the way that the Sioux waged war. General Terry had turned the Far West Riverboat into a command office and using maps that provided sketchy at best details of the areas that were involved, began piecing together a plan of attack on Sitting Bull's villages that involved a pincher-like attack, dividing Custer's and Reno's forces, underestimating the number of hostiles by many thousands, and putting into motion a plan which helped to secure the fate of Custer and five full companies of soldiers, and nearly the fate of the men under Reno's and Benteen's commands as well. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. The planning that determined the course of the fighting was being done by General Terry aboard the riverboat the Far West, as the 12 companies under Custer, Benteen, and Reno met and camped near the Far West on the south bank of the Yellowstone River. And it was here at this conference that we get an inside look at just how the military works. The unspoken code for advancement in the military is to place yourself above blame, partly by making sure that those lower in rank are made scapegoats should anything go wrong. From the start, it seemed as though General Terry and General Custer were doing their best to make Major Reno the scapegoat for any bad outcomes. Terry was furious when he heard from Reno that he had taken the initiative to follow his scout's advice and explore the Rosebud, where he found clear proof of recent Indian movement. Instead of being pleased with this intelligence, Terry was only angered that Reno had disobeyed his orders. Custer was angry at Reno for not taking the opportunity to attack and even sent an anonymous dispatch to the New York Herald, basically branding Reno as a coward and saying that Reno had disobeyed his, Custer's, orders. Forget the fact that Reno only had 300 men in his command and that the scouts had estimated Sitting Bull's camp numbers around 3,000. 1,200 of those being warriors. Four to one odds. Custer wasn't looking at numbers. He had made his brag that he, with five companies, could wipe out the entire Sioux nation. But now that Terry had been advised that the Indians had moved their camp, thanks to Reno's intelligence, he needed to draft new plans and new orders. Terry was a practiced attorney. He wanted to word these orders in a way in which he, General Terry, would be absolved from any blame if things did not go well, so he made them as ambiguous as possible. As Custer led his column south along the Rosebud, General Terry, General Terry and Gibbons' Montana column would work their way up the Bighorn to the west. Terry used stick pins to indicate Custer's line of march, but couldn't see it well because he was nearsighted, so he asked Major Brisbane to mark Custer's route with a blue line. The blue line clearly showed Custer marching past the turn that would lead him to Sitting Bull's camp. The implied expectation here was that Custer would follow Terry's orders and avoid plunging into the fight early, something that Terry knew Custer wouldn't, couldn't do, especially after berating Reno for doing the same thing. By crafting these orders, Terry was placing himself beyond blame for any eventualities. He knew Custer wouldn't be able to resist the bait. After the disaster, after Custer had lost five entire companies of men, 
General Terry, Major Brisbane, Major Gibbon, and Major Hughes all agreed that had Custer just followed his orders, a disaster of major proportions could have been prevented. That was their public face. But at the actual time of the meeting, according to a number of accounts, the same men were telling Custer to go for it if he had the chance. Gibbon's chief of scouts, Lieutenant Bradley, recorded in his ledger, It is understood. If Custer arrives first, he is at liberty to attack at once if he deems prudent. We have little hope of being in at the death, as Custer will undoubtedly exert himself to the utmost to get there first and win all the laurels for himself and his regiment. Fred Gruard said that he heard Terry repeat the instructions he had given Custer. I told him, Terry said, if he found the Indians, not to do as Reno did, but if he thought he could whip them, to do so. Terry used his lawyer's talent for drafting the orders in such a way as to exonerate himself from any responsibility. And remember well, blame does not slide uphill in the military. Never. It slides downhill. The orders read, Of course it is impossible to give you any definite instructions in regard to this movement. And were it not impossible to do so, the department commander places too much confidence in your zeal, energy, and ability to impose upon your precise orders which might hamper your action when nearly in contact with the enemy. So, if Custer turned toward the village and attacked and won, Terry could share in the limelight of victory. Who knows, maybe another star on his epaulet. If Custer attacked and failed, he was obviously disobeying Terry's orders. It was dark by the time Terry, Gibbon, and Custer left the far west and made their way to Custer's tent. Custer, later that evening, got in an argument with Benteen over the Battle of Washita, where Benteen told Custer in no uncertain words that he had received no support from Custer during that battle, and that he hoped that the coming battle would be different. Custer brought up the fact that Benteen had shot a 12-year-old Indian boy, to which Benteen countered that he only killed him after the boy had tried three times to shoot and kill Benteen with his gun and missed. And Benteen countered that Custer had abandoned Major Elliott and his men to die. Custer returned to his tent and spent a good deal of the night writing that anonymous letter to the Herald, blaming Reno, not Benteen, for all his troubles. On board the Far West, a high-stakes poker game raged through the morning hours. The players included the boat's captain, Marsh, Custer's brother, Tom, his brother-in-law, James Calhoun, and Captain William Crowell of the 6th Infantry, who was having a good night, winning several thousand dollars from Tom Custer and Jim Calhoun. Major Marcus Reno was sharing a half-gallon keg of whiskey as several officers, standing arm-in-arm, were singing sentimental tunes on the deck. The New York Herald journalist Mark Kellogg finished writing dispatches and went on deck around midnight, joining Major Brisbane, who was at the rail, watching the river flowing silently by in the darkness. Kellogg had originally decided to follow Gibbon and Terry, but had now changed his mind. 
and decided to go with Custer tomorrow. Brisbane asked him why the change of mind. Kellogg's answer? I'm afraid I might miss something if I don't follow Custer. Brisbane secured a mule for Kellogg and a few saddlebags, along with some provisions from the riverboat stores. Brisbane would later recall, We fixed poor Mark up for his ride to death. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Join us next week Sunday night for part two of Custer's Last Stand, The Battle of the Little Bighorn. Thanks for the great reviews we've been receiving. And here are a few recent ones. The first one, five stars. Magnificent, for lack of a better word. This is the best podcast. The stories are simply fantastic. The heroes are amazing. The legends are timeless. The history is enthralling. And the mysteries are captivating. John is a wonderful choice for a friendly voice to guide us through each adventure. I started listening when I was curious about the story of Bonnie and Clyde. And I became addicted. Now I await each Sunday for a new episode. The theme music starts, and I'm ready to be taken on another epic adventure, smothered with insight, facts, opinions, and gems. It's also nice in this polarized time of our country that this remains neutral on current politics. Thank you for that. Highly recommend listening. If you have already heard, read, whichever story is covered by this show, have a listen. You're likely to hear something about it that you never knew. Keep up the awesome work. That one from Oxydrum, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, very well researched and objective. I just found this podcast based on the Bridie Murphy topic. It was fantastic to hear a well-researched and objective version of the story without the skeptical predilection to begin with a non-belief and refuse to listen to any evidence that isn't consistent with that viewpoint. This talked about both sides rather than simply choosing to discard actual evidence. That one from Jake, 1931, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Enjoyable and informative. I love that you can hear the storyteller's passion and excitement, not to mention true love for history, in each and every podcast. Fun for folks whose minds love history, trivia, and the trivia behind the trivia. That one from Sarah Ray Warner, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, best one, five stars. I love it. Fun and educational. That one from Thias, 1980. Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one. Good storytelling. Five stars. It's like someone gave my grandpa a podcast. Stories about monsters, aliens, heroes, and World War II. Clunky format, abrupt ads, and odd editing choices only seem to add to the charm. That one from Randy Four, Apple Podcast, U.S. I also wanted to take a moment to alert you guys to a really successful podcast we have called Stories for the Road, 1001 Stories for the Road. And right now we're just finishing up the incredible story called The Lost World by Arthur Conan Doyle, which was very likely the inspiration for Jurassic Park, but it's a tremendous adventure. And we do it basically chapter by chapter over there. And we've done a lot of other stories at 1001 Stories for the Road that if you haven't downloaded it yet, find it and download it, put it in your collection, because you will absolutely love it. The adventure is great. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. 
This is your host, John Hagedorn. Everyone stay safe. We'll be back soon.